McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. And I am bringing you all a conversation with two experts in the fields of adaptive physical activity and, and public health. They recently, and I this is why I invited them on, is I was reading a chapter in the new handbook of adaptive physical education. And they had a chapter on public health research in um, our field of adaptive physical education and adapt and adaptive physical activity more generally. As we've been talking already prior to the recording, I feel like is an area that is very underrepresented in our field. And I think it's so dire to our field that we make a better connection and a better understanding of, of public health initiatives. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about my podcast is maybe a form of that. Before we get into all of the your chapter and, and why you wrote it and the, and the areas that you see. Can you briefly talk to me, uh, uh, both of you, Byron and Heidi, about yourselves and your background in the field of adaptive physical activity? Sure. Um, I, I don't want to take too much time on this, but, but it, it's sort of been a journey. You know, I did an undergraduate degree in physical education and then a master's in exercise physiology. And, um, you know, at that time, I think really frankly, what drew me into this path, into this profession was I had an undergraduate class in adapted physical education, where I worked in a swim gym program paired with a, a child with a disability. And that really sparked uh, an interest that I think I had had as a young person where I was sort of drawn, I think, to this population, really. And, and it wasn't until I was an undergraduate that I realized, oh, you can actually merge. I was an athlete. I was a, a college athlete, sort of bringing physical activity and sport and exercise to a population that I, um, you know, was really kind of drawn to and compelled toward. And, um, you know, after I finished my, my master's in um, exercise science, it was like, okay, I'm going to do a PhD and what direction am I going to go? Am I going to go high performance sport or what have you? And then, you know, back in those days, this was before a lot of internet and I sort of, you know, fell upon Oregon state university, um, because Jeff McCubbin was actually the, um, author of a textbook I used in my undergrad. And I'm like, oh, this, he must be famous, you know, if you're an author of a textbook. So off I went, I applied to Oregon State, sight unseen, had a conversation with Jeff on the phone and was pretty much sold after one conversation, was fortunate enough to be accepted. And, you know, I'm a Canadian um, and so uh, East Coast and went across to Oregon and then really found a home there. And, and little did I know what I was going to experience uh, there, but, and then went on to, you know, different positions. And now I'm at the University of Massachusetts, uh, Boston campus where I've been for some time, but I think really, Scott, it, it, upon reflection, um, it, it was a different time then. And, you know, for me, it was really a time when we hung our hat on, on the population, as opposed to now it's like so much more broad than that. And people have different disciplines, interdisciplinary. For me, it was like all about people with disabilities and using physical activity as a means to sort of promote health and promote inclusion and, and all of that. So that's sort of the simple answer to how I, I got where I am. And then my research and interests have developed from there and my collaborations. But is that, does that sort of answer your question? Did you want more than that? 
that that's totally fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep going. And and yeah. uh, we've had Dr. Uh, McGovern uh, on here a few times and uh, very interesting man. He's, he's yeah, amazing. So they, yeah, uh, Byron, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I, I would say Heidi and I have somewhat similar backgrounds and research interests, but I started my undergraduate, oh God, long time ago, it feels like, uh, exercise science. I did a master's in adapted physical activity and really, that's where my passion for working with uh, this, we're working in this area grew. I did about six years of hands-on experience uh, with exercise training with people with disabilities, as well as supervising students and teaching students how to work with people with disabilities. But the research component of it, uh, in my master's, we were uh, tasked with doing research as well as uh, teaching and learning and all that kind of stuff. And so... I grew a passion for research really well in undergrad, uh, and then it kind of burgeoned and grew, and then I ended up doing a PhD in University of Alabama at Birmingham under Jim Rimmer, James Rimmer, and I've been with him ever since, so I've been here about, uh, with him, I'm still here, University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, about seven years now, I think, and he, we, have really been doing a lot of research in conducting physical activity trials or interventions for adults with disabilities. And so just recently in the past few years, I switched from adults to children. And this is where I am now. I'm currently positioned in the School of Medicine in the Pediatric Rehabilitation Division. And I think it's important to mention that because uh, we, we talked a little bit about this but I, I would say Heidi and our background is adaptive physical activity. Um, but for the purpose of this conversation, when I, when I refer to we, I'm going to try and put everybody together, APE and APA. Um, but just the reason why I mentioned the Division of Pediatric Rehabilitation Medicine is that I'm actually, uh, I did my PhD in rehab science. So some people call me rehab, some people call me APA. It's not really a perfect fit, but... I think this uh, segments into our conversation because I, I do believe, and I believe one of the main questions is how do APE or APA and public health intersect? I think really it's all about systems and we can talk about that later. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that in, in, in one second. I think that'll be my, my, my question, but you're talking about working with Jim Rimmer and he's a graduate from where I got my PhD at Texas Women's University. And I, had a really profound experience with him in my PhD program that kind of relates to what you're saying. I, and we didn't know it was happening and he was doing a guest speaker at TCU and we drove out there as a group and, and we watched him. And I remember, I think I was a first year PhD student and he sat us down and he interviewed us each uh, in like a small room about what our research topics and interests were and methodologies and all this. And I was a first year student and it was, Jim Rimmer and he's got a, his photos in like the in like our uh, you know in our departments like thing of like honored alumni and uh, I was super intimidated and I remember saying things about physical education and he stopped me and he said you do you care about physical education or as a, or do you care about the discipline or do you care about health for people with disabilities and and that really changed my frame of thinking. That was really a profound thing that happened on my way of thinking of it is what we're doing as researchers and, and educators about promoting a discipline or is it about promoting 
health and wellness and, and, and happiness and inclusion for people with disabilities. And that really kind of changed my mind uh, on that stuff. But no, I, I'm glad you brought that up. So a little bit of background, uh, with, uh, Dr. Rimmer and I, we, uh, he has really uh, is right now in the works. We have been conducting the largest exercise trials for adults with disabilities. One trial's already reached 700 people with MS. Another one's got 300 people with physical disabilities aiming to reach 600. You know, we have a couple other of those as well going on. And so I'm trying to take those strategies and what we learned there about really knowledge translation, which I'm sure we'll get to and take that towards children. But you're so right because I think it's really about outcomes, health, and how we can improve the overall health and well-being of people or children with disabilities for the purpose of this topic. And the reason why he brings that up is because uh, public health is really about more than just physical activity. Right? We're really focused on physical activity, everybody in this call. But you know, I was actually convening with a colleague of mine. Her name is Anne Odusanya. Sorry, when she's listening, and butchered her last name. But she's actually in the Wisconsin uh, state. She's actually the state supervisor for the Children and Youth with Special Healthcare Needs Unit in the Division of Public Health. And so it was really interesting talking to her. I try to make sure that whatever I say today is, uh, is not too far off from public health or public health police in general. But when she says they're trying to help people, it's a lot more than just physical activity, right? It's just the health, it, there's the economic situations they have to worry about. They're looking at the person as a whole. And I think that's really important because, you know, even for us in APA, both APE and APA, we're just really focused on physical activity and you know improvements towards health, well-being, and all that kind of thing. But I'm sure Heidi uh, and I will get into it. But when you look at actually the evidence we have out there in terms of improving health, function, and well-being, all those great things, we're kind of lacking. And so, for example, uh, for Anne, she, her supervisor came to her and said, "Hey." on one of their uh, national surveys, or I'm sorry, one of their state level surveys, they found that physical activity was really not addressed. And so her supervisor came to her and said, hey, Anne, let's do something about this. Let's create some programs, et cetera. We'll have money next year. How do we do that? And she said, okay, this is great. Let's do it. But then um, you know, in the background, she's like, well, how do we do that particularly? And I think that's really where people like us can come in give our knowledge of what works, what doesn't, and have to create some program that can be scaled up to help a lot of people. And that, I think that's really where AP and APE, APA, and public health intersect. It's really kind of marking ourselves in that we are this physical activity expert, specialist, whatever you want to call it. We know what programs work, what don't, what are inclusive, what aren't. And then we can show these kind of public health experts or people in these positions where they can create and fund such programs that, hey, these programs have evidence to support them. And so that, that's my take, and I'm sure Heidi has stack on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think everything that, that you said makes absolute sense. I think we come to the table, people in our, you know, APA experts, and, and again, the field has changed so much since I, I've started in it. Like public health was really just, you know, when I was doing my graduate work, you know, kind of over here, and I took some public health classes, but never thought about 
how it intersected with my field. Like to me, it was like they were siloed and, um, you know, in adapted physical activity, you know, I was really taught with the medical model, right? Like what is autism? What have people with autism look like a CP? What is CP? What are the causes? What are the treatments? And that was how it was. And that then you adapted and modified for these common characteristics for someone with that diagnosis. We know that's really changed and evolved, um, over time, but that, that was the approach, um, that we were, that we were taught at the time. And, um, public health was sort of over here and something important, but there was really no effort to, to merge them. And this, this chapter actually was very, very eye-opening. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about it for me and doing the reading and the research and working with Byron. Um, Cause it took, you know, the chapter took a completely different direction than it would have had I written it by myself. And it's way better, way stronger because of Byron's, you know, perspectives that he brought in, which it just not a way that not a direction I would have gone thought to go because of my training and my background but you know just getting back really briefly to some of these legends in our field who give us these pearls um, when we're young and and we you know it sounds like all of us have these kind of moments that it's like oh that changed the way I thought and for me um and, and and the population was I was early in my PhD gosh I think I was probably my first year I think I was in Quebec City at at uh, IFAPA maybe or what have you I don't quite remember but it was Karen DePaul for me at the time and she was at Washington State and um, was just a, a real you know leader in her field and I remember her saying to me when we were talking about research and quite frankly at the time I wasn't thinking about research I was just fresh out and or fresh in <laughs> she said. Um, Whenever you think about an initiative, like a research question or project, she goes, always think about how it's going to impact people with disabilities. Don't ever kind of not don't ever do anything that doesn't directly impact our lives. It wasn't that strongly stated, but like kind of, you know, that, that's what we're trying to do here. Just, just like Jim said, like what we're trying to do is improve the lives, improve the health and, and, um, it really helped me moving forward with my research. Anytime I was thinking about a study it was like, how is this going to improve the lives of people with disabilities or the life of one person with a disability, whether that was a research project or a program, frankly, you know, if it was not even something that, that was, you know, had, had a research question behind it. And so that that's really shaped um, my work and, and my, you know, my direction um, in this, but I know we're going to talk about public health and you want to talk about the chapter, but um, you know, those pearls that we get from people with so much more experience from us, you know, really form who we are and the questions that we ask. So I wanted to acknowledge her as someone who, you know, set me straight. Absolutely. And, and this <laughs> conversation free form. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, um, but, you know, I, I do want to talk, well, let's talk a little bit about your chapter. And to me, you summarized a great deal of research related to health of people with disabilities. Now, something that Byron talked about, and actually in our last podcast, I'm sure you both know JK, uh, he was on my podcast and he went off on the lack of uh, research that we actually have to stand on in our field. And I actually thought you hit that point previously, as well as in your chapter, that, um we are a field and we have a, a, a body of knowledge, but sometimes that body of knowledge is a pond versus an ocean or a lake. Um, and, and so uh, I thought you hit on that quite a bit in your chapter, but let's talk then a little bit about that and, and some of the areas you discussed in this chapter and their implications for uh, adaptive physical activity. 
want me to jump in, Heidi? Yeah, go ahead, Byron. Go ahead. So it's a really interesting point. And, you know, we're going to talk a lot about what's missing, but I really don't want to. Uh, Heidi is good about poking me on this. We, we really don't want, we're not criticizing everyone's work because this is all excellent work done in the field. But really the way I, I look on how to move forward is looking at those knowledge gaps and research priorities that we should target and move forward. And so Heidi and I actually have done a lot of review papers in the past uh, recent years. And we didn't include that in this chapter per se, but we had one published recently that was a systematic review of meta-analyses and so the reason why I'm going to bring meta-analyses up is because, for example, when I'm trying to find out, my, my wife's pregnant, and when I'm trying to find out if something is safe for her, what do I do? I go to the highest level of evidence, and that's a meta-analysis. But her doctor said coffee is okay for her to drink. And I said, whoa, hold on a minute. And I went to a meta-analysis. It actually said, well. And so, you know, I was, so anyways, meta-analyses are really the highest level of evidence. In our review paper, um, Heidi and I's review paper was essentially a systematic review of meta-analyses for a variety of different uh, populations of disabilities, that, uh, pediatrics, mind you, I believe, if I recall correctly. And the overall consensus of that is that there really isn't very meta-analyses in our field. And so what that means is we're kind of lacking the, I don't, don't want to say high quality, but we're kind of lacking randomized controlled trials which he can base his conclusions on to make these meta-analysis papers and come up with very strong, confirmatory kind of, a, I guess you'd say, statements about whether these programs or these kind of interventions improve outcomes. And that's really important because public health professionals, what, they're, what someone like Anne is going to do is she's going to go, okay, this kind of program, all right, show me the evidence that shows this works so I can take this to my supervisor and we can fund this. And so she would ideally be looking for a meta-analysis of this kind of intervention, saying this work is safe, it's effective, it can improve that outcome. But I, I wanna also note that it's gotta improve the outcome over the short term, but hopefully over the long term as well. And, and Heidi and I have been looking at this for a long time. Uh, I think this has been around for over 30 years. We, our studies are very clinical. What that means is we're really good at showing pre and post outcomes from some kind of intervention It's usually eight to 12 weeks. They go through a physical activity program, they improve their strength, they improve their cardiovascular fitness, they might just increase the amount of physical activity they do. Mm -hmm. However, once the trial ends and we send them back in the community you know, without support, unfortunately, it looks like a lot of the times, most of the time, the outcomes revert back to their starting state, right? So we kind of lose all those benefits. Yeah. So there's a lot really we need to do, um, perhaps too much to even talk about in this podcast, but definitely uh, meta-analysis is where we need to end up going. And from that, really, there's going to have to be a lot more clinical trials done. But I also don't want to focus on like randomized control trials are not the know-all deal. Okay, there's yeah. plenty of awesome studies that are non-randomized. Well, I, I want to just briefly, I, I, two things on your meta-analysis. I was hoping that just because we have a wide breadth of listeners, and, and I want to make sure that we define that a little bit, maybe that briefly. But the other thing is, and the, it, before we get into the definition, is I, I have seen meta-analysis, so to say that they're always the end-all be-all, but sometimes I've seen meta-analysis that have seven, six, seven studies that are 30 participants in them or something, and so... To, you know, I, I'm a big pusher for having that 
I like the scoping reviews that you start off kind of really base, then systematic, and then you go meta-analysis once you have enough information to actually do these things. But can we just briefly kind of describe what a meta-analysis is? Because I also agree that they are the, the pinnacle of how we can make our, our decisions. Yes, our decisions. <laughs> yeah, so just in brief, there's tiers of evidence in research. Meta-analyses are actually at the top of this pyramid of levels of evidence. And what it really is, is a review of clinical trials, really only randomized trials most of the time. And they're averaged together the effects of these interventions on some kind of outcome. You could say muscular strength as an example. They would take maybe 20 studies that did an intervention and average all the effects together and do some analysis to determine whether there was actually an effect there. That would be your definition. And so it's the idea that we are not making uh, claims and decisions based off one study because we know that there can be issues in a study or we could have a weird sample or something like that happening. And so, yeah. So, yeah, and you, you, know, you hit the nail on the head. The meta-analysis we do have are usually based off small samples as well. So, you know, even if you get a meta-analysis, you're right, it's not the know-all be-all, uh, but because there's definitely limitations in every study, including meta-analysis. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I need to add much, but, you know, I, I mean, we, we did a pretty thorough review of trying to understand, you know, physical activity levels, you know, physical inactivity levels in, in different, you know, school settings and among children with a variety of different disabilities, because most of the research that's been published have sort of focused on um, kids by, per, by diagnosis, right? So that's sort of how we reported them. And, and, you know, we did acknowledge the, um, you know, that our field continues to grow and that um, research is emerging. And, you know, as Byron said, and I you know, did want to make that point that, you know, while the, the chapter does highlight um, the, the, the low, the limited evidence that we have is, um, I also wanted to make sure that it's celebrated, the evidence that does exist and the work that, that people are doing, the good work that people are doing in, in our field and the growth over time. Um, you know, I've been in the field a, a while now and it's really come a long way. That being said, I, I do think that we can do better. And, you know, we mentioned Jeff McCubbin's paper, um, which I think is an excellent paper on that, where he really questioned, not criticized, but you know, why aren't we maybe further along than we are? And, you know, I like how we question, you know, have we just looked in too many directions instead of focusing our questions? And I think that's partly because our field is made up of so many different types of people, right? That, yeah. and, and we focus on a population as opposed to you know, a, a specific area of study, right? So everybody in our field, you know, some of us are PE, some, you know, some are pedagogy, some are psychology, some are exercise physiology, some are biomechanics. And the one thing that we have in common is this population that we have an interest in. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, early on in this field, you know, that was sort of it that we, that we, that we all kind of focused on, on the population. And, we all like, I feel in terms of my training, you know, I know a little bit about exercise physiology. I know a little bit about pedagogy. I know a little bit about motor learning, but what I know a lot about is people in particular with intellectual disabilities, right? Cause that's, that's my focus. And, and, you know, I think we're one piece of the puzzle and, you know, with the, you know, evolution of, you know, around grant funding and, and, and that kind of thing is that, 
you know, there was a time that I remember thinking very early in my career that, you know, three people or four people in adapted, you know, all who would consider themselves adapted physical activity specialists around a table makes a research team. And what we know now is that, that that doesn't make any sense. You know, my research team that I work now is me, you know, with a behavioral psychologist, with a biostats person, with a, you know, with a nutritionist, with a social worker. And, and that's new, you know, when there was a time we'd sit around and it was, you know, we would publish with each other. And now we have these big teams and, and we bring some kind of neat expertise to the table, but we're also, I think, pretty good in this, you know, I'm stealing this from, from Vivian Temple, who's just like, you know, a legendary expert in our field who said, you know, because we know a little bit, we can bring people together, right? We can talk to each of these people and bring people around the table. And I really liked that because for a while I sort of questioned like who, who, who I was and, and what do I even really know? Um, yeah. And I, I really struggled for a while um, asking myself and, you know, Jeff's paper puts, puts that into perspective and I'm sure I'm not alone in that, you know, the newer people like you guys who are coming in, you're very different than, than those of us who were trained a while ago. And that may be part of, part of the problem. If we have a problem around evidence is that, um, you know, we weren't really sure where we were going. And, and Byron's absolutely right in terms of, you know, the intervention work is that we really are, you know, it was one thing to just show, wow, can people with disabilities improve fitness? Let's get them, train them, you know, eight weeks and see what happens pre and post. And, and sure, of, of course they can. Why, you know, why, why wouldn't they be able to? But now it's, you know, getting into sustainability and maintenance and, you know, as Byron talks about systems and change. So, um, but I am so excited about what, you know, despite, you know, in the chapter, we, you know, we, we did highlight some, some directions that we need to go and some gaps is, I was pretty psyched too about, you know, the international research that's coming and the movements that we're, we're making, which I think are all in the right direction. And those bricks that are starting to create a bridge to the disparities that have existed for so long. Um, Absolutely. And I, I wrote down a thing and it said, I don't know if you can see it, but it says, what do we know is my next question. Mm -hmm. So my next question, and you know, we've highlighted those gaps. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, my last podcast is a nice kind of continuation. And I think Justin Hagel was on there and he said something along the lines of, oftentimes we create a pancake rather than a tower for our research. We spread out versus build something of, but with all that being said, um, what do we know about public health and APE or APA such as barriers and facilitators to physical activity and, and, and what it can do for people with disabilities and, and so on and so forth? Start, go ahead, Heidi. Byron. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Heidi and I, once again, have done many review papers over the past several years. And yeah, I like how Justin mentioned the pancake versus tower approach. And that is kind of, and that's really what Jeff from Coven in that 2014 you know, paper said too, you know, we're really broad and diverse and that should be celebrated. Uh, but at the same time, it's so diverse and broad that we're, maybe we are lacking a little bit. Of difference. And so, you know, I think our, a lot of people in our field do a lot of review papers. And the, the reason for that, and other fields are like, why, why do you guys do so many review papers? And I go, well, this field is so broad and so richly diverse that we need to do these review papers. Every five years, there's so much research in so many different areas that we need to come back and centralize and look at what we're really you know, trying to target. And that's really what we, uh, Heidi and I have done in, in a lot of papers on 
fit. And so just from, I mean, there's so many areas that we need to work on as well as what we know. Uh, I would say in general, before we get into more detail, what we know is that, like Heidi said, hit the nail on the head, is that we know exercise is beneficial for fitness, right? And what I mean by that is muscular strength, cardiovascular capacity. Now, what we don't know is clearly whether or how these kind of outcomes can be sustained over a long period. And I really mean about six months after the intervention. So let's say they go through a 12 week intervention. How can they stay engaged in physical activity or exercise and maintain that outcome? So it's really, you got two components. You have to stay engaged in the exercise or physical activity, whatever you want to call it, and then maintain that outcome over a long period of time. Uh, and so, for example, uh, Dr. Rimmer and I did an NIH workshop, or Dr. Rimmer really presented it, helped him with it, was in an NIH pathway to prevention workshop. We noted that there really is no evidence for long-term benefits, right? And specifically for cardiometabolic health. And so, for example, in cerebral palsy, people with cerebral palsy are 1.5 times more likely to experience cardiovascular disease-related conditions by the time they reach middle adulthood. So ideally, we should have some kind of physical activity or exercise program that really gets them engaged in exercise like in the youth years, adolescence, and then they maintain their participation and their outcome so they prevent that cardiovascular disease-related condition. However, we don't have really any evidence to show that at this moment. The best we have is a study by Slamman and colleagues done, I think, in 2014 that had a, it was a long program. It was like a year-long intervention, a six-month follow-up. There was statistically significant improvements in, let's say, systolic blood pressure, cholesterol. However, they weren't really clinically meaningful. And so what I'm saying is we still have much more to go in terms of long-term outcomes and participation. Yeah. I'll let Heidi touch up on that. Go ahead, Scott, if you want to follow up. I, and my only follow-up was like, I, I, does that mirror able-bodied populations as well? My long-term answer is no. I mean, the short answer is no. Uh, the general population, when you look at the trials that are published like in the newspaper and you know the, ones, the big ones that really get a lot of, and their sample sizes are about like 2,000, 3,000 people. Our largest sample size from our review papers is, uh, well, for children, if we're talking children, is about 100 to 200. And there's only like a couple studies that have really reached that sample size. For adults, that's a different story. Uh, we've got trials that are reaching up to 700, like I was mentioning. Uh, but for children specifically, we're having an issue with recruiting. And that's, that's just something that's always been there. It's very difficult. But I would say no, because they're able to easily reach those sample sizes and really, you know, for example, exercises have to be adapted. That's the whole you know, point of our field, adapting exercise. Uh, you know, the exercise they prescribe is very typical, uh, you know, running, jogging, cycling, you know, and a lot of the times that's not suitable for our population. I think we, those, you know, longitudinal efforts are really needed. I think that we struggle um, as researchers um, because we obviously have to change behavior. And as Byron said, you know, maintain whatever that outcome is of interest. And there, there's no doubt, you know, we have studies that are in you know, intervention studies on fitness. Um, 
short term, usually saw an improvement in strength or flexibility or endurance, not so much, you know, in, in body composition, because that's obviously longer term. Um, and we make a change and we're happy. And then we go on our merry way um, and really needed again around that maintenance and sustainability. And, you know, in, in my view, and it's not just mine, but is that I think part of um, what's going to get us there is to move away from these um, interventions that are exclusive to people with disabilities. So we need to start there. You know, a lot of our work, as you'll see, that's published intervention work, my work too. It's like, you know, here is an exercise training program for adolescents with Down syndrome, or here's a dance program for girls with, you know, or women with multiple sclerosis or what have you. That's how we've published. But you know, if we're trying to think about translation into real world stuff, which is, you know, I think where research is now is saying, okay, it's one thing to do the intervention in a really highly controlled lab setting, but that's great, you know, but it's not generalizable. It's not transferable. So we're trying to do more things that then can be taken and implemented more broadly, as Byron was saying with his colleague in public health, like let's get some evidence and then let's roll this baby out. Right. And, um, you know, my, my thoughts are that, you know, we have to recognize that the world we hope is, you know, is an inclusive place. And to think that we're going to continue to create these kinds of individualized, in some cases we have to, and I, and I, I really feel there's a place for both, um, but these really kind of highly specialized um, training programs or whatever it is you'd like to call them for um, exclusively for groups of people with, with disabilities, um, a type of disability, and to think that that's kind of sustainable over the long term, um, I, th I think is a bit short-sighted. I, I think, you know, inclusion, we've talked about inclusion for the longest time, but it's that when we want to roll things out in the community, I mean, very few, whether it's YMCAs or schools, you know, whatever setting we're talking about, have the capacity to sort of own these disability specific programs. And so I do think that, you know, part of our work has to be, and you really don't see, Byron, I'm thinking back to the studies that we read, not, none of them were really, they were all very like, okay, this is a training program yeah. for this small group. None of them were really inclusive, you know, few in, conducted in really kind of natural, you know, community or school settings, at least in terms of the intervention work, maybe some of the, you know, observational stuff that was trying to get, you know, at physical activity levels or what have you, so. Um, you know, I think that that's where we need to go for talking about maintenance and sustainability is, you know, where do these women with MS go, you know, after they're done with Byron and what do they need in terms of behavior change to continue this and sustain this, um, what skills do they need? And, um, so that, that's, that's sort of my thought on, you know, some of the barriers that we as researchers have faced as well, you know, getting adequate sample and, adapting and modifying appropriately to roll this out after the fact. I, I totally agree, Heidi. And, mm. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, where it sounds like we're, you know, criticizing us researchers, but really it's not, <laughs> it's not our fault because the funding mechanism right. kind of dictates right. in a way that we do this research this way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so $5 million yeah. grant sounds amazing. And it sounds like a lot of money. But when it comes down to actually, you know, conducting a randomized controlled trial, with with the typical way we conduct these trials, it's very difficult to reach large samples of people with disabilities. But not only that, um, when you write the grant, the, the researchers who evaluate this grant are looking for that specialized paper on sure. for intellectual disability. You know, sure. And so that, that's kind of what uh, Rimmer mentioned in that recent NIH Pathway to Prevention. We need to focus on, we need researchers to accept really that when we 
target a group, we should probably be thinking larger, like you were saying, something more inclusive. So perhaps wheelchair users, you know, something right. that broad, right? right. Or right. maybe even one step up above that. So that way we can reach those larger samples. Yes. In the end, it just won't be translatable to the community if we're looking at specific. It's true. Yeah, but it's not our fault. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is true. That is what the funders, you know, it's like, you know, kids with ID, great. What's the IQ score? Or what, you know, whatever, yeah. it, you know, it's so, it's a medical model, right? It really is. And and I think you're right, um, Byron, to, or maybe to go with like, target people with like some kind of functional limitation, right? So people with balance or strength problems, it's like, who cares if they have, you know, MS or muscular dystrophy or CP or whatever it is, this is, you know, it's on a functional limitation instead of by diagnosis, but you're right. We're absolutely, that's how we get the funding for our work. Yeah. To be honest, I think the best we can do in terms of, you know, trying to group up is by function, probably using the ICF framework, yeah. Uh, yep. but that, that's really the best we can do. And we'll still get dinged for that. Like, you know, because <laughs> the researchers, the ones evaluating the grants are looking very clinical. Oh yeah. Like Patty said, they have to be within this, you know, this criteria, this criteria, this criteria, and then mm -hmm. it just gets more controlled. Uh, and so it's, it's not really our fault. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but I mean, there is, there's something to the, the clinical like piece of being is, as specific as possible because it allows you to make greater generalizations right Absolutely. to a very specific group and so it, it's a it's a it's a tightrope to walk and all that things I, I want to talk a little bit about um health disparities uh and such that we see especially with physical activity for people with disabilities you wrote about it and, and it sounds like perhaps you've done some systematic reviews on it as well um uh, can you talk a little bit about the um, why we see a lot of these health disparities for people with disabilities? Yeah, I mean, I can just defer a little bit to the to the paper, but um, you know, there's a pretty good knowledge base now, I think, around sort of barriers that um, people with different disabilities face to engaging in physical activity. So, if someone has a physical, you know, mobility impairment or an intellectual impairment. You know, there's there's pretty consistently or commonly reported barriers to physical activity, whether they're things around getting in the door, you know, physical access, or whether it's around, you know, feeling excluded or not um, having the knowledge, not having the motivation, not having the money, not having a transportation or um, service providers, not having kind of the knowledge or, or skills to accommodate someone. So um, there's, you know, environmental barriers, you know, personal barriers, et cetera, that are, you know, pretty commonly reported by people with disabilities, by care providers as well, when we're doing sort of proxy reporting studies. Um, so I think we've sort of, um, in, in my view, sort of, um, we know, we know that there's barriers, some that are more modifiable or addressable than others. And there's no doubt, I think that researchers are, have, in our field have done a pretty good job acknowledging what the barriers are. And when they de design an intervention, do their best to sort of tweak what they can, like making sure that they, they can address the known barriers so that um, people can participate in an intervention. But um, as soon as you um, get low levels of physical activity, as we all know, that's our field, we're, there, there's going to be the health consequences of that. So if we can't get people off the couch and in the door or engaging in, um, you know, sufficient levels of moderate, you know, to vigorous intensity physical activity, then we're going to, you know, see these disparities. And we're seeing them, you know, across all disability groups and across all ages for the most part, um, you know, at least in the research that's been done. Um, you know, in, in, in my opinion, um, not that I don't 
see a need for further work, um, understanding that aims to understand why these disparities in physical activity exist, um, because we always need more work to understand why. Um, I think we're, I think we know that there's a problem and I think it's time to act <laughs> and people are acting, but, you know, still see a lot more like studies on let's look at the differences between physical activity in this group and the typically developing group. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm guilty of it too. You know, we want to understand and we want to look at the correlates and we want to look at the determinants. And like I said, I don't think we should stop that work, but I do think we know that a problem exists and um, it's time, you know, to, to, I, I feel to sort of work on, on solutions, but as Byron said, you know, we, we're doing that with interventions, but more robust and long-term and maintainable and sustainable and translatable solutions. I don't have the answer. Um, if I did, then, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody once said to me, how do we get people more active? I'm like, you're asking me if I knew that I'd be somewhere else. But um, so, um, and I, you know, quite frankly, I'm, you know, certainly we know that people with, with disabilities have some, you know, face some unique obstacles to physical activity participation. And then they also face some of the same ones that, that we all face, whether it's cost and time and motivation and transportation and, that kind of thing. Um, but I think our chapter, and it was a really good exercise, at least for me, I don't want to speak for Brian, but to, you know, get into the current literature and whether that was national surveillance data or whether it was like direct measurement, you know, of people to, to really just further establish that, yeah, there, there's obstacles out there, some that we can address and some that we can't. So, you know, we do do the best um, that we can in terms of designing successful, you know, or effective interventions. Byron, you probably have some stuff to add to that. Oh, you, you did great on kind of summarizing, I think, the issue as well. You know, I'm looking at this paper that I always use to reference barriers. It's a paper done by Kathleen Martin-Guinness, Jasmine Ma, Amy Latimer-Chung, and Jim Rimmer. And it was a systematic review of review articles looking at barriers. Long story short, there's over 40 years of research looking at barriers, right? And I'm not, like, like Heidi was saying, like, this is important, particularly since when you are, when you as a, like a researcher or a person, health professional, trying to improve this activity in your area, your local, you know, your context. Understanding that is important because, you know, it's not going to be the same everywhere you go. A lot different promoting this activity in California, where it used to come from, versus Alabama, where I am now. A lot of different barriers. But having said that, there's so much research out there on barriers. You know, uh, Jim Rimmer says this in every conference presentation I see him at. Uh, he always says, you know, we need to stop admiring the problem and figuring out solutions, ideally, like Heidi just said, right? And so, you know, it, it, that paper they published in uh, 2016, it organized barriers into the socio-ecological model, which the public health field, this is all coming back together, mm -hmm. which the public health field really, I say lives by, but really, you know, advocates. And so you'll have barriers at the individual level, could be the knowledge, attitudes, and skills of the person. You can have barriers, the interpersonal barriers. So that could be family, friends, or a lack of social networks to support the person. You can have barriers at the organizational level. It could be the school system, right, APE, workplaces. You can have barriers within the community. That could be the design, lack of accessible parks, places close by near their home. And then you can also have it barriers at the public policy level. Right. And so there's so many unique barriers to look at. It's, it's very difficult. And yes, if you're a person 
in an area that doesn't have a lot of research done, you probably will have to do a paper looking at barriers, you know, facilitators in some way, shape or form before you actually can prove physiotivity. Uh, but there definitely needs to be a lot more work done. My personal opinion is that, you know, like Justin Hagel, you mentioned Justin Hagel said, the pancake versus tower approach. I think we need to replicate the successful programs that we do have because there are successful programs, replicate them on a larger scale. My personal opinion, because I'm biased, uh, this is my area of research, telehealth, uh, Heidi also does a lot of tele-research. Uh, you know, I, I believe technology is at least a answer or a solution towards trying to make these programs more scalable or replicable, transferable, however you want to say it. Because, you know, to build that tower, we really need to start thinking about larger groups. But then when we, you know, just thinking from a demographic perspective, there's about 800,000 people with CP living in, you know, in the United States. If you're one single site in one you know, place, you know, you're not going to be able to reach a large enough sample size that really we've been trying to talk about in this the podcast. But if you're doing something that's national, that's telly, and it doesn't need to be done, they don't have to come in for data collection, which yeah. unfortunately you kind of require, then, then you're talking you know, thousands of people you could probably access. But I would say, for, uh, before we deviate a little bit, that the hardest part of doing that is that we require them to come on site to do our measurements, right? Yep. And probably the most difficult. Yeah, no, you know, I love that because, you know, obviously the, there are some, sil some silver linings to this pandemic that we're in. And I think one of them is that the average person is sort of being forced, for lack of a better word, to learn how to do stuff right? Online, Zoom or what have you. And we, like many others, have a current NIH funded project that's on hold because it was an in-person intervention for kids with, with intellectual disabilities. And uh, we were three weeks into our 16-week intervention and, and had to halt. But what's interesting about it is it's also forced us, you know, we're giving it, you know, we're going to sit on it for year two, it's on ice, and then we'll figure out how we're going to start it back up. But the burden, you know, even if, you know, and, and my guess is it's still going to be an in-person intervention that's going to require some, you know, in-person data collection. But that being said, even the screening and enrollment process and some of those measures that can now be done remotely instead of families having to come to campus or wherever they need to go, we can do half of, you know, they might have needed two or three visits before the intervention even started. And some of those when they're screening and enrollment, they come in and then they're told they're not eligible, right? Sorry, your kid's mm. IQ is too high, you know, and, and you've just burdened this family. And so all of these things we can now do remotely. So I really think that, and those, you know, people like Byron and Lauren Tomey, you know, in Kansas and, and Joe Donnelly, who were, you know, people who are in rural areas who are trying to reach, right? And they were using remote um, programming and that before, you know, COVID hit and all that stuff, they're a step ahead because, you know, down now they've been doing this anyway. So I think, you know, Byron's really onto something in terms of, you know, the reach to do things tele and, you know, virtually and remote and trying to find some, um, some ways to collect data remotely, you know, even if it is fitness and, and, you know, not to diverge too far as I've, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been serving as a fitness advisor to Special Olympics International um, with their team. And we recently, because we're trying to reach athletes, you know, with intellectual disabilities during this time and keeping people engaged and connected and 
had to come up with a fitness test that we thought people could kind of like do on their own, right? Like a step test and, you know, using phones to measure heart rates because heart rate monitoring and trying to, you know, do some things that will help people monitor, you know, remember the, the Canadian at-home fitness test, which, you know, I was taught way back when and trying to get people to be able to do those things. Now for research purposes, a little hard, you know, have someone measure themselves, but is there a way that we can still get good, valid, accurate data when, you know, people doing it remotely. So I think there's maybe some cool things. And Byron, you're probably doing that now, I'm sure with your, with your people with, um, with your adults with MS, are you doing some remote measurement? Yeah. So uh, I'm even uh, writing a grant right now. And what I'm trying to do is a tele-intervention. So it's a home-based, you know, tele-intervention. Yeah. Of course, they get video conferencing, which we are on now, behavioral coaching, but they are, but the outcomes will completely be 100% remotely collected. And, you know, yeah. if I were to, if students are listening in on this podcast, right, and I was, I was telling them, hey, like, you know, where you should put your, you know, your effort in, if you did want to go into research is you need to come up with programs that are entirely remote, which I, I'm still struggling with. Like, I, I, I don't have one that's fully remote yet, right? Yeah. Oh, and that's, that's not true. Well, I should say I don't have a study that has objective, health outcomes that are measured remotely yet Um, and so what I would tell students is if you can if you can come up with an intervention that has objective measures of health that will satisfy like NIH reviewers or just like research reviewers in general Mm -hmm. and then you have an intervention that's completely conducted remotely then you're on to something because we've found in review papers that you know the data collection piece by itself like so what happens in an intervention is you have to have them come on site do some measurements, and then they finish the intervention, they do some more measurement. That measurement piece deters a lot of people from participating alone. And then mm-hmm. you have to have them commit to this long intervention as well. So if you can negate the need to come on site for anything, that would be fantastic. Uh, just like Heidi said, you know, I'm from California. I was born and raised there, but now I'm in Alabama. The challenges are so much different because mm-hmm. APE, you know, there's a lot of awesome APE programs in Cali a lot of local and nearby opportunities for exercise, physical activity. But when I come here in Alabama, to be honest, I was kind of naive, but now I'm, I'm working with children with cerebral palsy and their families. And I have a tele-intervention right now and I, I get to do some behavioral coaching with them. And the barriers or the issues I'm hearing seem so ancient from where I am in California because for example, they're saying, you know, I'm getting nothing in PE, you know, like period, like I'm not included. Unfortunately, there's nothing for me. So, and a lot of them do homeschooling too, right? For you know, obvious reasons. And then, so it's, it's they're really, like, it, it really depends on your context too. So yeah, telly, I think we, we've been forced to do telly here, like Heidi said, and it's just kind of been fortunate that, you know, with the pandemic that's going on, that telly's still relatively uh, important. And I think it even will be, still important in areas such as mine, you know, uh, moving after the pandemic. For sure. Yeah, I think, you know, so it's just, Kelly, it's just my my personal. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing research in online, including podcasting, right? It's It's a form of it. You know, if you really look at the literature, just kind of like we were saying, is that we don't have enough on the on on specific interventions that like specific types of online uh, tele kind of interventions, as well as what I mean, especially if I looked at the learning literature, um, it, it's pretty 
pr- the, the, the things that we can come up with is that it's not as good as face-to-face. That's pretty much if you like, that's that usually is right now, at least. And I see online tools as a progressive thing that hopefully will re we, you know, a lot of these interventions we've had, you know, um, of data collection are 50 hundreds, a year, you know, decades and, and centuries to work on. And then we've only been using this online setting for maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I think sometimes that to think of them as equal is, is maybe not cur- like, why should we think of them as equal if we've had so much more time in this face-to-face world? Um, you know, we're functioning in a kind of a, a virtual reality right now that um, we didn't know before. So I, you know, I think it's progressive and, and the hope is, is that eventually it will be equivalent or even better in some instances, but I don't yeah. know if that exists yet. Well, I would, I would challenge that a little bit because, you know, I think it's all generational. Like uh, my nieces, nephews, uh, you know, I don't have any kids yet, uh, but like they grow up on screens, right? <laughs> they grow up with tablets, iPhones, you know, you name it. Whereas, you know, I didn't have that stuff till like my 20s, right? And so sure. it's like, it's, it's, I think that over time, that gap is going to be closed just naturally from them being more familiar with these kinds of, you know, forms of communication. But I would like to take it towards the, the knowledge piece in the learning piece you mentioned. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about interventions and, you know, like that's like, that's it. But it's, that's not really it because education, just knowledge in general, like if you can instruct non-APE specialists, just general physio education teachers on how to be adapted, that's good enough, right? And so knowledge dissemination is probably that second component we haven't really touched yet as opposed to just uh, like replicating interventions and scaling up interventions. And so podcasts like these are great because it's really about you know knowledge dissemination. If you're looking at knowledge translation, implementation science, which is a whole field on its own that I don't ever claim to be an expert on, it, there's a whole field, a whole way of science on how to get knowledge programs scaled up and out there. And I, I think that's an area, it's not really, it's kind of related to public health, but it's kind of its own area in general. I would say that APE, APA also has to kind of close ties with knowledge translation, public health. If we can all work together, I mean, then we got a formula for success, but knowledge is the other piece of it. I mean, you don't really need to have a fancy intervention if you can get every physical education teacher in the country to be doing adaptive exercise, right? So, I mean, it's knowledge too. Absolutely. And I mean, that's kind of what I am aiming to do with this is to disseminate knowledge in in a way that you know especially in our field of being small was only available at professional developments that are you know and then state and national ones so it's trying to get experts like yourself on here to talk and and disseminate information that wouldn't have been available and my hope is is to not just reach our insular field but to also reach those those people that oftentimes are the ones like you know one of my areas i think i saw byron before Heidi was on as school administrators. Like I want to hit the people that 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 maybe have the 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 money <laughs> decisions or public health experts to to value some of these things more. Uh, and I think that's really important. Now, because of time, uh, I, I want to just end with uh, one last question uh, or, or you know comment. Um, well, I want to know you know what what would you suggest as one strategy um, that an APEA or APE or researcher in our field, uh, teacher practitioner could employ with this public health information that you have 
to help them increase or, or promote better health outcomes for people with disabilities? Well, one strategy is tricky, but what I what what I, what I think came across in our paper, and we pulled this. Um, it was actually JK's paper um, around, um, you know, physical activity in adaptive physical education. And, you know, we know, you know, there's, there's guidelines on, you know, how much physical activity is, you know, recommended for, you know, people to achieve some level of health status. And it was, you know, I found JK's paper really interesting when he sort of called out that, you know, in, um, as we train adaptive physical education teachers, a, a lot of, uh, you know, it, I'm sure it's different where, wherever we go, but when I think back to my own training and some now is if you look at what we're doing, what we often do is we train APE teachers to include, right? They, we don't want kids with disabilities sitting on the sideline. You know, Byron just gave an example, you know, students still sitting on the sideline. We don't want them to be excluded and over there doing something else. So we train these teachers to adapt and modify and accommodate so kids with disabilities can participate, right, in physical education classes, hopefully as well as, you know, intramurals and, you know, some stuff outside of um, PE classes, recess, what have you. Um, but I'm not sure we're, we're used, and, and this is where regular physical education is, is, is a bit ahead of us. You know, we talked about the, the Salas and McKenzie papers where they said, you know, school settings and physical education are a really, really, really important setting and vehicle for getting these kids to meet the physical activity guidelines, right? You know, we have this captive audience in schools, we have trained professionals, like let's make this rigorous. Let's make sure that when kids are in PE, they're actually active, that they're sweating. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, th those leaders in physical education research and practice have been kind of pushing that field to ensure that schools and physical education are, are really recognized as a vital way to meet public health objectives. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, if we think of APE, which is still, a, you know, is still PE, right? That we're there yet, that maybe we're still thinking about, and, and, and I don't wanna speak too strongly or too broadly, cause I assure you there's some, you know, APE programs out there that are doing this, right? So I don't wanna say it's not being done, but if we could shift the focus a little bit, um, for, for those programs that are maybe lagging a little bit behind and just sort of stop thinking that all we wanna do is get kids participating, kids with disabilities, that it's just about like getting them in the game, right? Getting them off the sidelines, that, that expectations have to be increased, that it's not just getting in there, but that they too are engaging in physical activity in a vigorous way. And that, you know, as long as it's done safely, that these kids are not gonna get hurt and that it's not necessarily maybe good enough anymore to just have them participate, but they have to participate at a level that's, you know, expected, you know, to improve, um, you know, to, again, to meet public health gu guidelines or objectives, physical activity guidelines. And, you know, I thought, I thought that paper was really good at saying, you know, we, we have to move the needle on that. And that, that really shaped my, my thinking for, for the chapter, um, quite frankly, um, was that, we that you know PE teachers can be APE teachers so if you're talking about one strategy is like maybe increasing those expectations and getting PE goals and objectives on IEPs and not just like again getting in there and not being left out but really you know expecting some level of physical activity um you know being realistic with that and safe of course but
Yeah. You brought up that McKenzie article, and I think that's a, a very interesting mm -hmm. article. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I know he wrote, I think it, twice he kind of did the yes. revisiting. So yeah. I don't remember which one, but I believe in one yeah. of them, he kind of puts out that 50% of being physically active in the PE, uh, which is, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, created that. And I've heard that many times now. Uh, I do wonder though, what, going back to just being, par you know, participating, I, you know, I don't know if we have that goal in APE um, for kids with disabilities to be physically active 50% of the time. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that's, that's usually an expectation we have. Um, and, and, you know, and again, uh, if it's vigorous, you know, activity, can we expect someone that's, a, you know, has severe and multiple disabilities to be re reaching those? I, you know, I don't know if we want to put those standards out there, but um, I don't think we even have those. We don't keep those public health kind of standards in our mind when we're working with kids with disabilities. We don't, we don't. And you're right. I mean, Scott, absolutely. We have to be realistic. Like if someone has, you know, again, multiple and severe, you know, we have to keep it all realistic and relative and, and that sort of thing. But I think your point is well taken there is like, let's at least have these in our mind, right? These public health objectives and what we're trying to do within physical education and kind of move past maybe in some cases more, as I said, just sort of trying to get these kids with disabilities in, involved in some meaningful way, but kind of move it even a little further toward the public health. And, and I, I think that um, physical education, again, driven a lot by, by Tom McKenzie, who's just, you know, utterly uh, amazing and so, so accomplished in terms of, of promoting physical education. Um, but let's try to get APE there as well. And I'm, I'm not sure we are. I'm not, again, some, some programs probably are, um, but my guess is most are, are not because it's taken our field a long time. You know, even with the fitness or physical activity research, it was always like, can we just get kids you know, far enough or adults far enough to improve fitness, you know, a little bit, improve muscular strength. But um, I think still there's some question around like, oh, you know, is it safe? Can you, is there, uh, are we pushing too hard or what have you? And we really have to, um, I think as a field kind of, you know, increase expectations and demands um, of, of people with disabilities. Brian, you probably- it, it, One other thing too, yeah. I think APE classes at sometimes, probably not, not the majority, but, but a, some replicate a, a physical therapy uh, uh, right. setting as well. And, and they're not probably having that thought of those public health things that the PE is trying to accomplish as well. Right, right. I think that's probably true, yeah. You put, you put it really well, Heidi, and I totally agree. Uh, you know, let, even if you get them, let's say 50%, you hit that nice criteria, like that's still not enough to hit those guidelines that Heidi mentioned, right? So, I mean, unfortunately, we have to do more. And I know it's easy to say that because, you know, they're already so burdened, so busy, you know, just trying to get people, you know, kids with disabilities to engage. But, you know, if, if you had asked me that question, I would say two things. We have APE, APA, we have to make ourselves more marketable and we have to be friendly. And I'll explain what those mean. So marketable is really exactly what Heidi was saying. We have to try and not to show that we can get them engaged in PE, which is great and needs to be done. But ideally, if we really wanna convince public health professionals that our, you know, our programs are you know, excellent and please fund this, which I think need to be done eventually in some point, if you want to and are helping more people and scale up the program, then you're going to have to try and hit more things, unfortunately, than just physical activity. So my, my colleague, Anna Odustani, she said, public health involves examining and addressing health behaviors, looking at 
the whole person when it comes to individuals, meaning that there is a consideration of multiple levels and the full spectrum of needs, including medical, behavioral, socioeconomic, and beyond, right? And so there's a lot bigger picture than just physical activity. So the more we can do, the better. So for example, if, the, if in APE, we can also you know, emphasize nutrition, mindfulness, you know, those kinds of things. And that, that would be nice and beneficial. So market would, is kind of the first point I'd like to make. This, the second point is friendly. So in research, and I would say just in our area in general, you can't get anything done alone on a large scale. You always have to collaborate. You gotta make friends. You, you, gotta, you gotta get expertise in other areas because you know, no one knows everything. And no one, I would say, you know, if you, the higher up you go in academia, you realize how little you know, I, I would say. And that's why uh, I think Justin Hagel said it in the APA uh, webinar we had before, but you know, I, I would never call myself an expert in anything because the more you learn, the more you realize there's so much you don't know. Right? And so there's, no one's an expert, I'd say. But to get back to the point, friendly collaborations, building networks, and, and that's really the way to address these kinds of problems because like I was saying, one center, one facility alone, maybe with technology could reach a lot of people, but if you really want to increase your you know, odds of helping a lot of people, you're going to have to make relationships. That, that would be my two points, marketability and friendliness, collaboration. I like it. Those are, those are nice thoughts. Well, thank you, Byron and Heidi, for coming on. Uh, I think this was a great topic, a great conversation, and, and it was very interesting to lear uh, learn from you both. Great. I learned a lot too. Thanks for having us, Scott. It was a lot of fun.